Welcome to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast, part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. In this episode, Joel and I spend a bit more time explaining what evaluative outlooks are and how they influence the way that we consider evidence, or even more, how we derive arguments and evidence from our evaluative outlooks. And we offer some implications for apologetics and for how we Christians should even consider our own doctrines. If you're interested in more information about apologetics, the intellectual side of the Christian faith, or how wisdom plays in all this, please check out our website, tacticalfaith.com, and let us know any questions you might have or topics you'd like a couple of Christian philosophers to cover. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast. Joel and I are here today, and today we, we want to actually start doing a little more of the constructive work. We've talked a lot about what people get wrong in apologetics to some extent, at least uh, we'll get into more of that actually, uh, but what we think Rhett and Link got right and some of what we think they got wrong. But today, instead of talking about talking around it, we're actually going to set out what we think is essential to the way that we view apologetics, the way that we should view evidence and arguments and so on and so forth. Um, but we're going to try to keep it uh, somewhat, uh, not quite lay level, but a little more sort of lay level. In the future, we might do a podcast or 12 where we go into greater detail talking about particular thinkers and how they've made these arguments and how they relate and kind of tying it all together for the, the nerds out there. But at this point, we want to start talking. If you're out there, let us know because we yeah. want to know we want to know who's listening so we know so we're actually producing content that people want to hear. Yeah, absolutely. If you if you are listening, feel free to uh, say something. Email us or find us on Twitter. That would be great. Um, go to our website, tacticalfaith.com, um, and you can find out how to find us. But to start with, what we're going to talk about is a little bit about what ev- evaluative outlooks are and how they impact the way that we think about the world. Uh, but at this point, I'm simply going to hand it over to Joel. I'll probably interrupt him with stupid questions. Um, but he's going to lay out a little bit about uh, how what evaluative outlooks are and how they relate to the way that we we view apologetics uh, or arguments in general. So, Joel, go for okay. it. Okay. Let me first say, we all have an evaluative outlook. Now, you're probably like, hold on, hold on. I, I didn't sign up for this, and I'm going to say, of course you didn't, because it, part of being, the human experience is an evaluative outlook. So if you, you think for a minute, we all have our own way of experiencing the world, and when we experience it, we're not just experience, you know, we're not just taking in what we see, hear, smell, feel, and taste. We we have feelings, uh, and and we we um, when we experience the world, there's more than just the that that data coming in, but we react to the data as well, and that's part of our um, evaluative outlook. Um, but this subjective experience, I it can can have two people experience the same thing and the the same data and experience it in very different ways I, you know given the that you know tactical faith is based in alabama i think of, of you know alabama auburn football game is a wonderful example for half the state whoever wins they're going to be excited about and for the other half of the state they're going to think that it was a terrible game um even though we can all agree on the data you know, the, that the game ended with this score, our experience of that is going to be different. 
or, you know, even think, you know, you can think about it just a piece of clothing, you know, for, for the Alabama fans, if they see an Auburn shirt on someone, they're probably going to feel mildly um, disgusted and vice versa. Um, that's not what, or, you know, and so that's part of what our subjective experience of the world is. It includes this, this feeling that we get, and that, that comes down to what do we value? If we value um, one th one thing over another, then that thing that we value more, we're tend to going to be happier when that value is demonstrated. Uh, we're going to be sad when it's not, and or maybe happy and sad is the wrong way to put it, but have more positive emotions when it's it's there, less positive when it's not. Um. So what we value, um, or what we see as good shapes our experience of the world. Um, with this evaluative outlook, the, when we talk about evaluative outlook, we're, we're saying how do they contribute to our actions? And, and we're going to say that what we see as good influences what we do. In fact, evaluative outlooks follow Aristotle in saying everything we do, we think it aims at a good. We don't do anything that we think aims at something bad now we might recognize that society says it's bad or or you know our faith says that this is bad or or whatever but we think that there's good that is going to be, come about from our actions whenever we do an action and so whether or not it's actually good is a whole other discussion because we can do things that we we can aim at things that we think are good that are really bad i mean e even in a horrible example like someone murdering another person if that person, when that person murders the other person, they are convinced that 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 the person they're murdering, being dead, is a better world than a world in which they continue to exist. Um, and, and, and while they might not say it in those terms, that's what's going on, especially with premeditated murder, or even in that particular moment, they might, if it's a murder of passion, in that particular moment, they feel. Like it's a better world without this person than with this person. And so how we experience the good, how we value the good, what we value as good drives our actions. Right. So this is, this is one of the things that uh, when we keep using the word good and people might say, you know, if something is good, we, we tend to, we tend to think of what is good. What, what is good is what is actually good. And so we never act toward, we're, we sometimes act toward the good, we sometimes act toward the bad, uh, because we believe the thing we're doing is bad. But when we say good, we're, we're, we're speaking of it in a more, a more general sense of, of, the kind, of what you think will fulfill your desires at the time. Right. Something more like that. And so we, uh, yeah, we, you know, you may understand that doing this activity that you're about to do is bad, but right now it feels like it's good and you're acting in accordance with how you feel. Right. Um, and so there's a, even though you might know that it's, you might in a certain part of your head know that it's bad. And when we say feel, we, we don't just mean like, you know, emotionally we feel it's, it feel that way, but, but we, we see the world in such a way that if, we think that if we do this action, even though we know we might quote unquote know it's bad, we feel like the world is going to be better for us having done this action as we do the action. Yes, we, we perceive a value there. 
in in the end which we're trying to achieve. So uh, if I'm in a murderous rampage, I perceive a uh, I see the world as being like being a place where this person is dead, and and it and it draws me. You might yeah. say something like that, and this could be cold blooded or it could be full of passion. It doesn't matter. The point is that it's a value that I perceive. And then yes. I act in accordance with that value. Okay. So this next statement is is going to be tricky. It might be tricky to explain. So um, I hope Travis pushes me if, if, it, if I'm not clear. But I want to say that there's a difference between convincing ourselves that something is good and perceiving something as good. So what, what I'm saying there is if we have to convince ourselves that something is good, then that means we don't actually think it's, we don't see it as a good thing. And someone has to convince us that contrary to what we see, it is a good thing. When we say that we perceive it as a good thing, we're saying that we naturally, that when we look at it, we see good value in it. And no one has to tell us anything because we're like, yeah, we, we see the good. Um, right. I have this experience with jazz music. So... <laughs> Uh, there's certain kinds of music that I simply, you don't have to tell me it's good. I like Sigur Ross. I love Sigur Ross. Um, you don't have to tell me anything. I just listen to them and I perceive the good. But if I'm, if somebody puts on some jazz and I know jazz takes a tremendous amount of skill and so on, I've, I've had people go on long <laughs> explanations as to why jazz is brilliant. And it's one of the highest levels of human achievement or whatever. But when I listen to it, I don't hear it. Right. Uh, Generally speaking. And so if you like jazz out there, uh, grow up. So, <laughs> but, uh, uh, so yeah, but someone tries to convince me and there's a certain point where now, now being convinced can lead to you perceiving it eventually. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. So like, like the, the first time, uh, our, our, our mutual coffee friend, uh, Brett Jameson gave me uh, real flavorful coffee. All I'd been drinking was that uh, brand of coffee that is widespread and seems to be infecting every corner of the earth. And it was just bitter burnt coffee. And he gave me this new coffee that was good. And he said, this is good. And I drank it and it tasted like somebody poured tomato soup into my coffee. I was like, what is it? That's, that's what it tasted like to me. I'm like, it tastes like there's tomato soup in here. Um, and so he had to sort, he was trying to convince me uh, but he tried to convince me partly by having exposing me to it. He kept he kept giving me different kinds of coffee, and eventually I came to realize, wow, this is really good. And I started being able to recognize the different flavors. But it it was something that I had to develop, partly by being convinced, partly by by, by being exposed to it. And then it got to the point where I simply perceived it. Mm -hmm. But the initial state of convincing is just like leave me alone and let me drink my dirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and. And, you know, not just, well, when you're, when you're being convinced, it's, it's more work to do what you're convinced to be right than it is to do what you naturally perceive as, as good. So, um, for instance, you know, a, a classic example that people like to talk about, like, you know, everyone is convinced they need to exercise, but when the alarm goes off in the morning, that kind of shows possibly that in that moment, at least, you do not perceive it as good because it is a lot easier to perceive the good of staying in your bed rather than getting up and exercising. Um, if, if, if you're just convinced of that. Now, when you actually perceive the good, 
you start to just get up and be like, okay, time to go work out. And um, that is that, you know, you might also need to be a morning person to, to, to feel that way. Um, so that's another part of your evaluative outlook. Um, but the, the senses that, that I'm trying to con- communicate is when we are merely convinced of something, it is a lot harder to do that than when we perceive it for ourselves. When we, when, when, when we look at something and say, this is good because from the, when we see that it's good naturally, that's going to be easier to do than some, than looking at something saying it sure doesn't feel like it's good, but deep down inside, I know that it's good. That's that action is going to be a lot harder to do. Right. Right. And you can, you can see that even with some people who exercise, right? The people who get started, they hate, they initially they're excited and they do it once or twice. Then they're exhausted. They don't want to get up anymore. And then they become CrossFit crazy and they start evangelizing exercise. And, you know, these people perceive the good almost to a fault. Um, and so, uh, so yeah. All right. So sometimes habits, habits can help us form perceptions. Yes. And, and which that's an important idea right there. Yes. Yes. And, and sometimes just paying attention can help us to change perceptions. Like, right. you know, what, when, when, you know, Travis talked about his coffee experience and mine was similar and, and, you know, one of the things that Brett would, would sometimes do is he'd be like, do you notice this flavor in it? And you start paying attention and you start catching up. Oh, I, I do, I do taste that flavor. And, and so you start to learn where to place your focus so that you can start to see the things that are good and so that it becomes easier to see as opposed to just being told that, yes, this is good. Yeah, that's good. I was paying attention to what you said right there. <laughs> and that's good. Okay. So when we think about habits, when we think about paying attention, those are, are two of the things that help to change our perceptions. And and that's how we change our evaluative outlook by starting by changing what we value. Because we when we start to perceive the value in things and not just being convinced of it, being able to perceive it for ourselves, we see it as good. And so our actions are motivated by those goods that we perceive as opposed to goods that we are told are good, even if we don't necessarily believe it ourselves. I mean, I, you know, I've got young kids and we want them to eat their vegetables. And one of the ways that we motivate them to eat their vegetables is that if they want any kind of treat after after dinner they have to eat their vegetables now they we realize that right now they're eating their vegetables sometimes because they want the treat and sometimes and, and don't don't before you're like you give your kids sh- you know sugar to get them to eat your vegetables that's counterproductive no, not always we we will sometimes do healthy treats too but um but the idea that we're getting at is there's something good about this and we want to motivate you to to hopefully start to see it as good, and um, and so, and with one of the children, it seems to be having a positive inf- effect. And on the younger one, we're we're still working on it. But um, but you know the the goal is we want him to value eating his vegetables because we know that that's good, and and so we're trying to to do this. And it's a but it's a process, and it takes time. It takes work. It's not, it's not like we wake up tomorrow, we can wake up tomorrow morning and be like, 
I, I, I value a completely different set of things. Now, now, there do seem to be examples of conversion stories throughout history of people who do have that experience, but that is not the norm. That is abnormal. It's not what we should expect. If you are one of those people who get, who has that, I envy you because the process of changing what you value is, is very difficult. And I'm not going to try and act like it's a simple thing. It's, it's, well, well, you know, the, the steps might be seemingly simple. The actual work itself is incredibly difficult, um, especially on the big ideas or changing things that are kind of fundamental or have been core to your experience. Um, you know, if, if, if I'm going to talk about one thing for myself, it's it, it, the shift from being individually focused to trying to focus on community and seeing, seeing beyond myself or just beyond my, my small core group um, as, as being valuable is not something that happens easily. It's something that takes a lot of work and, um, and seeing people that I disagree with as being just as valuable as me is, is not an easy process. Um, and something that takes a lot of time, but the, the goal in all of this is that you want to shape your value of outlook so that you experience the value in the world as it really is. So when, when you see something that's, good you experience it as good and you have the positive emotions that are associated with that experience as good uh, when you see something bad or evil that you experience it as evil and you have the appropriate emotions that should accompany that experience but it comes down to what do we value and what do we value in you know, as we perceive the world in that moment, um, let let me give let me try and give another real life example. Um, and I'm a morning person, so I, I pick on those who are not. And I will say my wife is not a morning person. Um, but this isn't just at my wife, but this is kind of um, people who aren't morning people who struggle in the morning. That snooze button. That snooze button can get overused. I've had, had college roommates who are this way that they, they're like, I want to get up at this time. And so they set their alarm and they hit the snooze button and then they hit the snooze button and then they hit the snooze button. And an hour later, they're still in bed. And as a morning person, I'm like, if you weren't going to get up till that time, why didn't you just set your alarm? Or, you know, and then they'll say, well, I set my alarm plenty early so that I could use the snooze button. All. I'm like, why? That makes <laughs> no sense. Um, you know, right. but, but, you know, when the, when they keep hitting the snooze button in that moment, they're saying the good of staying in bed is better than the good of getting out of bed. Even if, even if you were able to wake them fully and ask them, what is, what is the good right now? And they would say, I know the good is to get out of bed and do this in that moment. That's not what they feel. That's not what they, how they are experiencing the world in that moment. And the difficulty when you think of the world in this way is our goal is that our evaluative outlooks are aligning as closely to the way the world actually is at all times, regardless how we, you know, how um, awake we are, not just, you know, physically, but 
you know, even just awake to what's going on in the world. Um, we, we want to be working that we value the things that are worth valuing and valuing them in the right way. Um, go ahead. So let me, let me ask you, I actually have a couple of questions, uh, and I don't know if other people are thinking these, but I'm going to ask them anyway. Well, I have, I have two questions. Let me start with, with, uh, with the latter one. Why should we believe that the world is such that our values that, that I can actually care about the way the world actually is? So you said we, we should want our values to align with how the world really is. Why should I think it's that way? I mean, so let me, let me just come at this in a sort of a sloppy way. So what you're saying is I should like the way the world is. So there's hunger, there's disease, there's whatever is, should I, should I look at that and say, this is good. You should look at that and be, and say, this is the way the world is. I mean, it, it it would be naive to act like that's not that like there is not hunger, that there are not bad things in the world, but instead of looking at them and being like, and, or trying, instead of trying to ignore them, you should acknowledge them and not act like these are good things, but say, this is how the world really is and have, and, and is hunger a good thing? I think we would all agree that it's not, you know, as far as like mass hunger, it's, it's not a good thing. And so instead of, uh, instead of um, having a positive emotion about that, we should, we should view that as something that is, that is the reality of the world, but it is not a, a good thing. And that finding a positive way to, to effectively address that is a good to, for which we should strive for, to which okay. we should be drawn toward. Then, so what does it mean for our values to align with the way the world is? Are you talking about simply actually perceiving? I mean, you said this perceiving the good is good and perceiving this bad is bad, mm -hmm. or is there something? Well, let me let me then ask another question. Okay. Um, when we're changing up a value, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use a vague phrase, but when our values are transforming somehow, um, are we coming to the point where we have new values that we never had before, or is an or is an, or is one of our values just being straightened out so to speak like how, how like can i can i develop a new can i can i develop maybe i should say because it does a desire seems to a response to a value is a is at least one response to a value is a desire i'm not sure how we want to go through that but i know we might be digging too deep here but uh can i come to value something that i just never cared about before or i i think think so I mean, uh, some so you'll you'll hear this sometimes when um, you know, when couples get married that are very very different from each other, and you know the one one of the spouses will um, look at something the other spouse values and be like, I see absolutely no value in that, and but over time. They can start as they try to see what their spouse sees as valuable about that, and 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 um, and try to understand their spouse. They can start to see the value that their spouse sees in that particular thing. 
Um, and so that can be sometimes, sometimes that's a new value. Sometimes it's a reordering of values. Sometimes something that we thought, eh, this is kind of valuable, but it's not that important becomes more important as we, as our evaluative outlook is shifted. Um, and so it's, it's not always something new, but, um, many times it's just, um, learning to pay attention to something more closely than we did before, which then reorders the values that we, we, we perceive. Okay. Okay. Um, we might have a discussion about that. I don't know if I agree with you a hundred percent. I think all <laughs> values, I, I think they always connect with some fundamental desire that we possess. That is like, like, you know, you develop a taste for, well, it's, and this maybe is cheap, but you develop a taste for, for fancy coffee. Well, you've always had a desire for things that taste good, right? When you're a child, all you like is hard candy for some reason, and you wouldn't like a steak or a brisket if you were handed it. You're, you're like, I don't care about that stuff. And as you grow, you develop new taste. So it's almost like your, your, your tastes become, they develop, but it's still the same desire. Uh, I, I, I can grant I'm that. not sure that matters for what no. we're talking about. No, but I, what, I mean, I guess what, what I'm trying to get at is something like, um, as we transform into, into better, I should say, I mean, cause I want to say that we're talking about being more aligned with the way the world, more aligned with what is truly good and, and, and more opposed to what is truly evil that we're not asking people to take on desires that are disconnected from how they were created. Let's put it that way. Yeah. To, to, right. We're asking them to align themselves with desire to actually align the desires that they in fact possess, but are all out of alignment and maybe disorder. And, right. And, and, right? And that, might, that might be a better way to think of it because, you know, with, with so my, my wife really, when, you know, when we got married, she really couldn't care less about things like the Chicago Cubs or Purdue basketball or football. But over the, Almost fourteen. Then she years became ago. corrupt, is what you're telling me. Well, we're, we'll just say her evaluative <laughs> outlook has shifted, and, right. and you know, she, she, you know, over time, and it wasn't like overnight she suddenly got excited about it, but she, you know, she would watch games with me. She would, you know, pick up on little things, and you know, over time, that slow shift that played on desires, like you said, that on 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 values that she already held, um, you know, she came to, to get in, excited about it. Now, you know, I, I tend to get excited about athletes, you know, abilities. It's the backstories that got her, you know, the backstories hmm. about the, the athletes, you know, where they came from, what, you know, what was all, all the stuff that, you know, during the Olympics, I always fast forward through. Um, <laughs> that's the stuff that my wife, you know, loves, but, you know, we, we kind of both can value something, even if we come to it from two different ways of coming to value it. Um, and, and so, but it, it was not based on this completely foreign desire she had, like, like you said, but it was a modification of, of desires within her that led her, led us to valuing the same thing. Although we came at it from two different directions. Right. And you'll notice that there, and this could be a great image for apologetics, maybe in general too, is that it came because of a change of habit based on a relationship with you mm -hmm. and watching your attentiveness to it such that she paid attention to it. Yes. So there's the attentiveness, there's the habit, and there's a the relationship with you 
I mean, we could probably just call it, call it a day right there. Um, so, so that's, that's, I think that's a great image of, that's at least a part of it. And if that's, if we're talking about evaluative outlooks and how we do apologetics, that's it right there. At least in a, in a lot of respects, that's it right there. Yeah. But, yeah. but I, but we need, there's, there's a, there's this nagging question that I keep bringing up over and over again that I think is important. And I think someone like Rhett and particularly Rhett out of the Rhett and Link, um, would perhaps focus on, and I think many an atheist would focus on, and that is you guys keep talking. They would say, you keep talking about evaluative outlooks. I don't care about evaluative outlooks. What I care about is the evidence for what is. So let's just go to, to Rhett's first thing, right? When he started becoming convinced that evolution is true. Now we've already talked about, you know, evolution and so forth. Uh, you can go back and listen to what we said before. This became sort of the, the chink in his armor or the crack in the dam that began this, at least it that's kind of how they described it, that began to tumble and led him to questioning the veracity of the Old Testament and then eventually questioning Jesus himself. Um, there's this fused chromosome that he talks about, right, that we share with the apes or whatever. Mm -hmm. And according to classification, we're apes, right? Humans mm -hmm. are part of the ape, ape uh, classification according to science. Um, which, you know, given if you were to sit in my college classes and watch the students, you'd realize that you are, uh, not act anyway. So, um, uh, so I looked at, I look at this fused chromosome and let's say I look at it as an atheist or, or, and I, and I look at it as a Christian, what does an evaluative outlook have to do with what I'm looking at? Is this evidence for evolution or not? I mean, that that's the question. And it seems like it's evidence for evolution. Are you saying me, are you saying to me that if I have a relationship with Jesus, I look at it and I see something else? What I'm saying in that particular situation, th and there's a couple different ways we can go about this, about talking about this particular thing. On one hand, you can say, you know, a Christian could say, wow, it's it's cool that. God used evolution in that way to bring about humanity. Or you could look at it and say, or, you know, I, there are other Christians who say, wow, isn't it great that God used the same material and basic, same basic design as in apes as he did in humans, but when he created us as something separate from apes. And the fact that, that there's that seemingly fused chromosome can, doesn't, doesn't necessarily doesn't have to mean oh no god had nothing to do with this um you know the 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 problem with evaluative outlooks when we start talking about science is that we want to is that we often want to deny values a role in the discussion um and so we want to say we just got to look at the data and when we look at the data, we see that there are these two genes that are very that that were in apes that seemed that the elements of those two genes are seen in one single gene in humanity. That is what the data says. The data does not extrapolate to causation by the data alone. There are values that have to enter the discussion for us to be able to to extrapolate from 
that that means those two genes were fused together by evolution in order for them to be produced in humanity, in order for humanity to come about. That requires value in how we assess the data. And that is separate from just observing the data. And once we bring in value, we have an evaluative outlook that causes us to interpret the, the data in a particular way. Okay, so let me let me maybe I can uh, maybe I can I can offer a quote from the Bible and compare it to this, right? Um, when we're told we're going to, in fact, you hear it at funerals all the time, right? In in the curse in Genesis three, or at least the pronouncement of what's going to happen to us, depending on I don't know if you want to call it a curse or not, but um, there's some debate about that. But uh, you from you from dust you are taken, and to dust you will return. If I look at that just in terms of the data or the data is which is how you're actually supposed to pronounce it. Um, but uh, if I look at it in terms of that, then I'm saying, well, we're from dust. And so therefore we are dust, but that's, that's a, and I don't know if I'm saying exactly what you were getting at, but to say someone is from dust, doesn't mean they're merely dust. Right. Uh, just like uh, you might say a diamond is from, is, it's just made out of carbon. So it's the same as like, it's the same as a lump of coal. Well, no, no, it's not. We recognize, I mean, that's, that's kind of rough because I don't know if diamonds have inherent value, but, but we recognize that even though they're made out of the same stuff, it's a different sort of, it has a different sort of value. And just because, just because you're made from something doesn't mean you are simply a result of that process or simply because you're made out of some stuff doesn't mean that you're nothing but that stuff, right? We call that reductionism. But, but, but to come to the conclusion that you, you are, or you are not requires the introduction of value. And that, that's, that's why evaluative outlooks are important because evaluative outlooks, we have, if, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to say values are influencing the way we interpret what we see in the world. And so so someone who's like, who who does make that claim that you did, or you know that you you or the claim about carbon and or the coal and, and diamonds, that person, you know, to say that it's that they're different or that they're the same, both people are invoking value in how they interpret that information, right? And so yeah, and so to act like it is a pure, it's just the evidence that says this is a bit disingenuous. The evidence has to be coupled with, with your evaluative outlook, which, in, which is value laden in order for you to interpret that into however you interpret it. Right. And that's true and this, for every single human being out there. And every, every claim that's made. I mean, yes. we could, we could drive this, we could talk about, you know, Kuhn and Quine and we could talk about all, which we talked about in some of our first podcasts, which, are probably relatively incomprehensible. Those, but, those, uh, those might be our lost years that we talk about eventually. <laughs> right, right. I'm losing years doing this podcast. Uh, Y'all <laughs> need to send us money for crying out loud. So um, maybe we'll actually get you know better. So, uh, but uh, so so we can you can go down deep and we can talk again. Wittgenstein, Quine, Kuhn, all these kinds of people, include and Nietzsche. We could bring in as well actually support this idea that values give give shape to the way that we perceive things. And so that when you when you look at the data or the data, um, 
which I think that's how Willow's kids refer to him in the movie Willow. Um, if you look at the, if you look at that, the inform, sim, the simple fact in order to interpret how it all relates and what it says about us, that, that requires the, the, uh, bringing to bear of the values that you hold. Um, this is why, this is why, uh, in some ways I need to be careful how I do this, but if I'm a Christian and I am obsessed with the question of evolution, of whether it's true or false. Um, it could be a sign that my values are off because the belief that how I am made, I think I brought this up early on, but the belief that how we were made, like the process that was used to believe that that determines who we are. I think that already confuses value and it doesn't even align with anything we believe, right? A car isn't merely the process of what made the car. Uh, a flower isn't merely the process of what made the flower. Um, it's, it's how you use it. It's what the purpose is for. All these things, all these different elements are brought in, particularly with human artifacts, are brought into it. And if I automatically believe that the process determines what I am, then I've already rejected the existence of God. Or, or at, least, at least you've shown the existence of God to be of lesser value than it should be. Yeah, it's, it's it's of no meaning, right? If if I say because a car isn't merely the process that makes it, it also is the intention of the of the inventor and the workers and so on and so forth that explain what a car is. Um, if I believe that you know, because God used this particular process, that therefore I am nothing but an animal or a piece of dirt, then I'm leaving God out of the value, and right. I'm and I'm and I'm emphasizing the 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 events that took place instead of the one and the one who made me and the, and the purposes he has for us and yes. he has for me. And so now, now if you're, if you're, if you're debating evolution, because you're trying to talk about the historicity of the Bible, that's a different topic, right. um, which gets into a bunch of other complexities. But, but, uh, but if, if your emphasis is look, if evolution is true, then we're nothing but animals. Then you've already rejected God's, the importance of God and personhood. From the outset, and you might as well just hand over the hand over the victory to the materialists because you've already given them everything, or 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 at least what you're what in in that in setting things up that way. What you've what you've done is you've said is you've um, defined definite you've defined evolution in a way that God is excluded from possibly being involved. Whereas the the those Christians who do hold to evolution are going to say that God was involved with evolution like and so you're you're already talking about two different things um right. right so that's good okay so so we've talked about you you've you've introduced evaluative outlooks you've talked about how it how it affects that we look at how it affects how we look at the data and we've talked about a particular piece of evidence that's brought up in the discussion mm-hmm. and that is this evidence of this fused chromosome um and how we determine what that means obviously relates relates to evaluative outlooks. Well, there's two routes we can go here. One is just to talk about how apologetics functions. And I think the story of baseball and your wife are pretty useful, even though she was drawn down into darkness <laughs> instead of toward the light. But uh, um, I want to bring up, bring up one other thing. Uh, there's a danger here when, when value is, gives ground to our perceptions 
how are we how can we be sure that our values are in fact aligning with with reality because it seems to me that if i care about a particular set of values i'm going to going to begin to perhaps perceive those in the world and begin to interpret the world to support the values that i hold and i'm stuck in this circle that i can't get out of so what is the what is the check on being caught in this vicious circle of projecting my values onto the world and therefore finding evidence supporting my values? This is the tough question um, because evaluative outlooks do involve our emotions because they involve what we value and that we, that it admits a, a, a feedback loop between our emotions or, or what we value and, and how we see the world how we experience the world. Um, this is why other people are so important in our life and not just people who affirm our way of our, our values and affirm our perceptions, but being in genuine relationship with people, um, even especially people who love you is important. You know, so one, one of the things that, um, that people say which is true is you know when you get married you find out how wrong you were on so many things and there's a humorous way of saying that but there's also the element of being married to someone means that you're in a real relationship with a, with someone who sees the world differently than you and you're going to bump up against each other because you see the world differently and there, there's this there's this constant um you know, uh, intersections of you guys, you know, bumping heads because you, you see the world differently and, and it's not necessarily wrong, but you, you realize that, wow, like the things I value, the way I perceive the world, that might not be the end all be all. There's other ways of seeing things that maybe I need to reevaluate what I think reevaluate how I see things. Um, and when you do that, especially with people who, who want what's best for you, who want, who are looking out for your, your interests, who are trying to, um, to help you, um, that is a good and healthy thing. Um, however, it, when you isolate yourself or you only want to be around people who affirm the values that you already hold, who aren't willing to push you or who you don't want to push you to see the world better, to, to, um, to have a fuller picture of the world, you, you do create a, a really troublesome feedback loop that is only going to, um, that's only going to, uh, further strengthen those values that you hold rather than looking to make the values align with reality. Yeah. So this is, this is really interesting. And I think if you listen to retina link, they're affirming a worldview that is merely affirming. That is not a call to be. I mean, there's some elements of call calling to be better. That mm -hmm. is stop calling other people to be better. Right. That's the primary, 
there might be a little bit more of that, but but let me because I want I want to I want to get to this this idea because it seems it seems like what, what part of the experience that Retin League went through is they went they started in a place where everybody agreed. They started having some sort of issues, but they were really afraid to confront those issues that they had. Um, and then they went to a place where everyone agrees again, but they were sort of out of sync with them, but they find that they align with those people. So they moved from North Carolina or wherever it was to Los Angeles. And it seems like one of the primary elements of, of this kind of, I don't know. I'm, tr- I'm thinking of the story when Link's talking about hugging a man whose name I can't remember, uh, but he's a homosexual and Link at the time believed that he could not genuinely hug and love the guy because of his Christianity, which uh, every Christian should think that that's ridiculous. But I think every Christian may be in, in that situation. Every Christian who holds that homosexuality is, is wrong might have a personal struggle with it, but it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I mean, of course you can hug them. In fact, Obviously, you, sh- you should love the person, but the question is, what is the? Uh, and I'm not. I don't even want to debate the issue or talk about you know whatever. What, what's wrong with what or whatever? That's not. That's not my point. The point is, is the only way to love someone to affirm the way that they are right now. Is that what constitutes love? If that's what constitutes love, then the kind of community I want to build around myself is not one that disagrees with me. I, I'm, and then I get trapped in a, in the feedback loop because there's no one to push me. Uh, now there is some element of pushback, uh, even in, even in this kind of culture, right? If I'm a kind of person who excludes some people, well, excludes certain kinds of people, then there's, then there's pushback, right? But the idea is that generally speaking, what makes you bad is when you call other people to be different. To be different in a way that they don't want to be different. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or cause them obviously pain or something, right? Which we can generally agree with, uh, depending on how you define pain, right? Um, if I'm a coach and I say run, that causes pain, but I think that's a decent thing. <laughs> so maybe. Uh, maybe, unless you're a baseball player. So for the Cubs. Um, so so it's, when you're talking about community, that, I mean, this is the point I'm trying to get at. Because uh, generally speaking, when when we hear the community in our culture, community means a bunch of people who have the same desires, right? So we think of the such and such community and this community and that community. That's not what community means. Community means means the way you're talking about, or I should say, the persons, the community that we're in, is a group of people who share a particular val- particular set of values. Surely, but but that value has something to do with with becoming with growing. Or something like that. So when I look at you, I don't think, and I got to be careful about the language here. I shouldn't look at you and think he's perfect the way he is, and uh, therefore nothing should ever change. Merely his life seemed. My primary goal is to help him not have any kind of suffering in life. Instead, unwanted suffering. Unwanted suffering. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're like a Fifty Shades of Grey person, whatever. So I was thinking more of a, of a runner, but <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. Right. But instead I should be looking at you and, and, tr- and seeing a trajectory in on which a trajectory, which you should be traveling 
now I may be I may be in error and I learn as I get to know you and so on and so forth. But there has to be a certain kind of value that helps me recognize that I myself am not where I should be. I'm not as great as I could be. I'm not as as you know, name any element of my character, any, any kind of activity I do. And I'm not where I should be. Um, and I want to be, I should want to be there and I should have other people. If somebody loves me, they should love not merely where I am, but, but desire that I become greater. Right. Better is a tricky term, but I want to say, I just use greater because it seems a little more generic. I should become greater. So, if I'm a runner and somebody sees that I love to run, they should want for me to be a a greater runner, whatever that whatever that means for for me. Um, uh, not simply be listen, don't don't push too hard. It's running is hard. You need to you're going to have it's going to be it's going to be tough, and sometimes you're going to get injuries. So you really need to try to relax more and not run so hard. You, Maybe a better way to say it is, if we're going to use the running example, when the runner hits a plateau, it's really easy for the runner to just kind of be like, "Well, I guess this is the best I can do." And and you and it's like, if that is all you want at, out of your running, that's that you're not going to be open to someone coming alongside you and saying, "Hey, let let's push through this." Let's. Let, but if if you're if you're open to the possibility that you could be more that you want to be more than someone coming alongside beside you and and nudging giving you that nudge that you need to push you off that plateau is is going to be embraced and welcomed the 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 question that i think we're we're trying to wrestle with here is is that what kind of is do is how many people really want to be to get that nudge to get that push and how many people just want to be made to feel comfortable and affirmed as they are right because running running may not seem like a great example because not everybody should be trying to be the best marathoner in the world or whatever that's not that's not where your gifts lie but there are ways in which all of us could be better than what we are, mm-hmm. right? Um, except for me, but everyone else, you know, no. But th- there's there there are ways in which we we could we could be improving in some way, and that doesn't necessarily mean working harder or whatever. It, it working like in terms of our jobs or whatever. It could, might mean working less, right? It might mean uh, learning what your neighbors' names are, right? You know, it could it could be any any number of things in which we're in which we're seeking to improve, and we should we should. For us to have our values properly aligned with the world, we need to be in relationship with people who check our values. They perceive the world as well. They're they're in error in some ways, but that develops through a rich dialogue and relationship that causes us to constantly be checking ourselves. It shouldn't be just a bunch of people sitting around in a bubble agreeing with one another or leaving each other or sitting in individualistic situations, leaving each other alone. It's got to be people who even struggle in some disagreement with one another who may not affirm everything about my lifestyle, uh, but care for me and want what is best for me. Mm-hmm. And they're even learning what's best for me just as I'm learning what's best for me because I don't really know uh, in full detail. And so uh, 
this is this is kind of a when we're talking about community, that's what we're getting at, right? And, it's dangerous yeah. to be surrounded in, in, in a bubble. Yes, yes, and and another element of community is, you know, is that it's something that like it's very very rare for you to just fall into community. Community isn't something that just kind of happens. Like you, you there's an intentionality necessary, and um, frankly, if if we're not invited to be in community with someone, then we're probably not welcome to. Uh, as much as we might think we love them, we we're not really welcome to come along and be the person that tries to push them off the plateau that they might be on. Um, because that, <laughs> like Westboro Baptist church running around, right, right. Making the world a better place somehow. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's our job to, you know, given the place we play with the role we play in their lives. Our, our job is, is not to try to love them out of whatever or love them to some improvement that, I mean, it'd be weird if someone walked off, uh, walked to you, up to you off the street, and said, "God has called me to love you, to be a better, in, into being a better person," and you would just kind of be like, "Who are you? And what? What? Like, stay away from me. Like, I even if God told you, He didn't tell me that, so stay away." Um, I, we, the evaluative outlooks require, or you know, the modification of evaluative outlooks require um, relationship. Or at least an openness to to want more, um, if in order for them to be changed. Well, this is this is one of the problems with apologetics is it's is it's just arguments that are shot out to everybody and to nobody, right? And uh, therefore, encouraging someone to perceive the evidence in a way that recognizes the value that you have, it can be really tricky when you're doing apologetics, because what is, what is the value that a person? So, so let's say, let's say Joel has an argument. Let's say Joel, Joel is, Joel is an atheist on Twitter, whose name is, you know, atheist 9846. And I'm a Christian on Twitter. And my name is apologetics wizard 9845. And, and my, my goal is to convince this guy whom I've never met, whom I don't even know. And he's got, I don't know, a picture of an ape for his profile picture. My goal is to convince him to become a Christian. And so I, I see him say something and I respond and I have some sort of argument with him. And I just, I'm calming him and I'm uh, teleological argumenting him. And even I throw in a little ontological argument and I do the argument for morality and I do evidence for the resurrection. I do all this. I'm just, just beating him down and beating him down with argument after argument. He can't even keep up with how brilliant I am. <laughs> What's the value that, that Joel is seeing? Is he seeing the value of the goodness of Christ? No, it's the value that I am manifesting. I think that most people, and it might not even be what's driving me. I might in fact care for him at least initially until he disagrees with me. And then I, then I hate him. But anyway, but I may I might care for him throughout, but the the it doesn't matter. The value that he's seeing is the value of of uh victory in mm -hmm. argumentation. It's the same as wrestling or a sport or anything else. My goal is victory. My goal is to defeat you. Now that may not be what I think I'm doing. Mm -hmm. It may in fact not be what I what I am desiring to do. 
but that's what the other person is seeing. And that's why whenever somebody makes an argument, you see everybody responds like with animosity. Well, why? Because you're trying to beat them. That's what they're experiencing. Right. And apologetics, when it's shot out into the, into the ether toward no one in particular, treats no one as a person. Nobody knows who you are. Nobody cares. And so it feels like an attempt to achieve victory. Right. And that's it. And right. that you get saved is cool, but I really am just trying to win more for my team. And no wonder that people don't respond well to it. That's a lot different than sitting down with your wife and watching, attending something together, right. changing a habit. And for her to care for you in such a way that when, when you look at something with awe and wonder, it's a little, maybe a little strong for baseball. <laughs> but uh, If you look at something with interest, she's like the per, a person I care for. I mean, she's not thinking this out loud even in her mind, but this is sort of what's happening. Someone I care for is showing interest in a particular thing. And the natural desire is to show interest in that same thing and try to see what is it that they see there. Mm -hmm. And that seems a better route for apologetics than mm -hmm. shooting out arguments. But, but then how do I do it? Does that mean I can't engage in apologetic discussions with people I don't know? So the, the, there's, the way to handle arguments in apologetics is is not to try and win even even if the arguments are good and at least we all like to think our arguments are good um the role of of apologetics is the arguments is they point to the goodness that is god that is the triune god and so these arguments are ways to try to help people perceive God, to, to, to see the reality of God and, and who God is. And so if someone doesn't share that perception, if someone, you know, if you put that out there and someone it doesn't lead someone to that perception, they've not rejected God. They're, they say, I, 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 can't, I can't see it that way is effectively what they're saying when they dismiss your argument. And so, in, you know, when, when you're talking to someone and you try and, and you're like, Oh, do you see that, you know, out, off in the distance? And they're like, Nope. That you, you, you will be like, okay, let me try another way to help you see it. And, and so the goal is, you know, the, it's done with much more uh, graciousness. It's done much less with the concern of, of, winning because the goal isn't to win. The goal is to help someone else see what you see. Um, and so you're as, as, and they do also be in relationship. Well, I mean, ideally you're in relationship with them to where they kind of know you at least have some sense of who you are so that these arguments aren't just these sets of propositions that they're trying to assign truth value to or d discuss the logic of, but that there's more to it than, than that. Um, but the goal is always to perceive because when you perceive the triune God for who the triune God is, then your these arguments are supplemental, but they're, they aren't the perception themselves. So if someone knocks out one of your arguments, it's like, well, I, I still perceive this good. And so you try to find another way to articulate it. And, and the arguments are not where your faith is. 
but they, they're pointers to your faith. And if someone knocks out some of your pointers, you still see what you're seeing. Um, the arguments are kind of like helping someone. So uh, this is a very dated example. Um, for those of you under 30, this probably means nothing. But back in the 90s, there was this really this thing that we, we thought was really cool called magic eye pictures. And they looked like a bunch of gibberish when you first looked at them. But if you knew, but you, if you trained your eyes to see the right way, you could see the design come out of it. And once you saw it, you couldn't stop seeing it. Like you would have to unfocus and then come back to have any chance of, of seeing things differently than what you did. Um, and that's kind of what apologetics ideally is doing is it's helping people to learn to see the the magic eye picture what's really there even though it may not be apparently may not be there on first glance and that is the triune god and the goodness of the triune god that is evident in, in all of creation and in, in 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 all the world that that is displayed as most clearly as Jesus crucified on the cross. I mean, this is, we're recording this on, on, on Holy Week. And I mean, Holy Week is just full of examples of, of Jesus turning upside down what we expected the world to look like. You know, he comes into Jerusalem as his victory march, riding on a donkey, not on a, on a great steed. You know, he shows what it means to, to lead by washing his disciples' feet, by doing the job of the, the servant. He shows us power by being crucified on the cross. You know, these, these things that are not how we think the world is, we have to train ourselves to see the world as it really is, as Jesus shows us, in, 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 as, as Jesus helps us to see the reality that is uh, the triune God and the goodness of that, in the, of, of that God in the world. Right. And arguably, Jesus on the cross is the clearest image of who God is. That's why Paul kept saying, I preach Christ crucified. Why did he keep emphasizing that? Um, why didn't he preach God coming back and beating up the bad guys? I preached Christ crucified and he preached the resurrection because, well, we could go into great detail about this and about the different kinds of ways to view power and so on and so forth. But there's something about the, about Jesus submitting and allowing himself to be defeated that manifested the very value. He let himself to be defeated. Yeah, I mean, he let himself be beat, let himself be crucified and killed. Um, that manifested the goodness and the wonder of God. And Jesus kept saying, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Uh, not, not, not when he ascends, because he was kept referring to his crucifixion. When I am lifted up, when I'm at the lowest of the low, that is when I am lifted up um, physically as well as in terms of, of manifesting the goodness of God. And the goal is not victory in the way that we normally think of victory. The goal is manifesting this, this goodness. Um, now, there are elements, though, of the way that we view the goodness of God and how that connects with the way that we perceive the world and so on and so forth. But this, this gets in, gets us into really deep water and the way that we can talk about apologetics, but it is uh, where we've gone over an hour so far and I think we're going to have to call it quits for this time, but hopefully that gives you a sense of what we're talking about. 
apologetics is we're not saying that the arguments are wrong. We're not saying that uh, nece necessarily that the arguments are wrong and so on and so forth. What we're talking about is that really apologetics needs more and more to be a part of instead of depending on the arguments to to win, to support our faith and so on and so forth. We need to be looking to the one that we love, s opening our eyes to the goodness of God uh, and then allow the arguments to flow out of that and reflect that and point to that, not to not to serve as a separate sort of thing. So my relationship with Jesus is not different or distinct or unrelated to or only dependent upon the arguments I have for God's existence. Mm -hmm. Rather, the love of God and the goodness of God, it actually affects the way that I perceive the evidence as well. How so? Well, that's complicated, and it's not a direct t t attempt to have a very clear explanation beyond maybe what we've gone. Even though I think we can, we can maybe go a little bit further. Is 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 really missing the point? Um, when I look at the chromosome, do I say, okay, we are we are merely more evolved out of a blind, uh, purposeless existence, uh, apes or primates, or so therefore, you know, we don't have any kind of value or we don't have any kind of inherent value and personhood is sort of an, an accidental add on that happened to come because of de highly developed, you know, neural linkage. Or do I think I look at my I look at those who I love and I realize their value is far deeper and far richer and far more lasting than and more meaningful than than the process that brought them into being. I mean, it seems like only a psychopath would take the first view, but that's what we keep being called to. And uh, when we're talking about, uh, you know, you got to look at the facts, you got to look at the facts. Well, no, you're not talking about just facts. You're talking about the values I'm supposed to derive from them, or the value, or the values that that tell me how to interpret the facts. And uh, I mean, that's dealing specifically with it, with the issue of evolution. But I mean, I mean, we we can we can even you know, look at some other things to, to try and help us a little bit. Um, you know, like what, what, what are the, what's the purpose of, of, you know, rules or, or law. And, you know, I think, um, you know, Christianity the last few hundred years has, has taken on a, uh, very legal focus as far as what, what goes on in salvation, which then leads us to look at the, the law as these are the rules we have to keep. You know, and, and, and it's, it's, it's much more about, well, we, we do this so we don't get in trouble, but if we, if we can take a step back and say, it's, it's, it's more about shape, you know, the, the law was, was given, you know, the Torah was given to, to show us how to live well, then that changes things. It, the law is, is shaping our perceptions. It's shaping what we value rather than it's something that we have to live up to. It's rather, it's, it's, it's influencing us to see the world the way that God sees the world, not right. the way that, that, you know, we want to see the world, but we, we adhere to God's rules because God's got power and he's going to zap me if I don't play by his rules, even if I don't see the point of it. Right. In the last podcast, you talked about the world, the world making view, but how there's, we generally look at our actions as we have a set of desires. We have a belief about how to fulfill those desires. And I gave the example of the junior high kid talking back to his teacher or whatever. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and when, when our desires aren't fulfilled, then we realize we have to change our beliefs. And we look at the law that the legal, the legal perception of salvation and sanctification and, and the biblical Torah and so on and so forth is basically, I have a set of desires. God says, listen, you got to act a particular set. This is how you should act um, in order to, to fulfill your desires. And so I have to believe in Jesus, which means I have to believe that Jesus exists, and then I can get my desires fulfilled. That's silly. And that's a silly view of faith, and it's a silly view of what of belief if if it's separate from desire. Mm-hmm. And that's what I that's what I feel like in many ways was happening, even in particularly when Rhett was describing his story, his belief about Jesus and his desires w- weren't they didn't seem connected except that his belief could undermine um well, it just changed. I don't know. I need to think about that. But uh, but God isn't calling us to simply do a particular set of actions so that we can fulfill our desire. He's calling us to to come to see the value that's there so that our desires align with the way things are meant to be. Something like that. So uh, when we emphasize even, you know, substitutionary legal, you know, penal substitutionary atonement, um, the primary problem I have with that is not that it's false, it's that it's truncated. If it is merely a legal element that makes up for the fact that we broke some rules and now we get to get the rewards even though we broke the rules, what? that's silly. We're, we're not being called to relate. Even there, we're not being called to relationship. We're being called to just getting what we want and Jesus is, is, an, is a means to an end. But no, Jesus is the end that we're being called to. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, and that's 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 part of the issue there. It doesn't call us to change our desire so much as to change the route by which we get what we desire. But that's not. But that's. And, and, and you know, even if you look at a lot of Christians and the way that they perceive heaven or the new creation, um, and it's like, okay, I've got to adhere to these rules so I can get what I really want when I die. And it's like, hold on, like. Jesus says the kingdom is here and eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus. And that starts here. And so it's like the goal isn't that, you know, we, we tow the line now so that we can, you know, if you like to go fishing, go fishing throughout eternity. The, the goal is to be transformed so that we, we are prepared to spend eternity with God and we desire the things of God. And we, 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 and that the new creation is a place that we, we will thrive because we have been shaped to be like Jesus. Um, it's, you know, we, we, so this is a spoiler alert. Skip the next 30 seconds. If, if you uh, are a good place fan and haven't finished the series. Um, but my, my issue with the finale is, you know, to get to heaven, you had to be about other people. But then when you got to the good place, it was kind of this, self-focused thing so that you would get tired of yourself and you would kind of want to take yourself out of existence. But if you are finding fulfillment in other people and that's what your life has become about, then that will continue when you move into the good place, the new creation. And, you know, we, and that's, that's kind of, you know, we're being prepared for the king. We, we are living in the kingdom now so that when we find the, when we reach the fulfillment of the kingdom, it will be a place that we already know and thrive with it. Right. A place where we fit and we, we find fulfillment. 
So we, we've ta- we've talked a lot about 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 this, and, but I think I would lo- I think Joel and I are going to carry on, and we might get a little bit more complex and a little bit deeper into. Uh, uh, I'm not sure precisely how we're going to go from here, but I think we might make a podcast that where we just dive deep into some of these ideas. We're kind of trying to skim the surface while going deep enough to to explain it. But I, I would imagine if uh, if you disagree with, if you're out there disagreeing with us, you might be like, these guys aren't providing enough evidence to support their position that evaluative outlooks have an effect on on evidence and so on and so forth. So we may go a little bit deeper and we may talk about some apologetics sorts of arguments that contain within them uh, a call to our desires uh, in the way that we perceive God, particularly the issue of love uh, and how that connects with personhood and the belief in the Trinity and so on and so forth. We might go there. I kind of would like to. We'll see. Um, But I think we need to wrap it up for today. And so thank you for listening. Questions, thoughts, please uh, feel free to let us know. Wondering uh, at tacticalfaith.com and there's an underscore where where the A or the O would be in wondering. Um, Or follow us on Twitter at at wonderingwisdom and again, an underscore where the A or the O would be. Um, But for now, this is Travis. This is Joel. Have a great day.